I so admire strong female leaders like Mary Kay, who took $5,000 back in the 50s and said, I'm going to build a business. And she built a $3 billion empire. It's amazing. And I just, I adore that about her and yeah. the company culture there and who they were serving. They knew, spot on, talking about our subject today, who their target audience was. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Marketing Blender Show. I'm Dacia Coffey, and if you haven't noticed, I have a special co-host today. Melora Moore is one of our amazing fractional chief marketing officers, and I'm super delighted for you guys to get to know her and to dive into buyer personas and talent personas. And the fact that this is one of the key places where people waste money or maximize their return on investment in marketing, but we've got to get this nailed. So Mel, welcome to the show. I'm so excited. This has been a long time in coming. It has, and I'm very, very excited to be here and talking about a subject that, you know, is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, you've done a lot of this too. So before we dive into the topic though, I want everybody to get a chance to know you. Sure. So talk a little bit about, you know, your career path and what's, mm -hmm. you know, the path to chief marketing officer. Okay, uh, well, I have been in marketing since I left college. Oh, we won't talk about how many decades ago now. <laughs> I have Shh, <laughs> I've had the great privilege of working for some wonderful organizations uh, from Fortune 500 down to startups. And at each and every one, there's just been an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into all of the different facets of marketing, from research to product development to branding to you know, corporate communications and having those really exciting opportunities to sit down for interviews yeah. like this, or even with you know interviewing for magazines and things of that nature. So my career has spanned the gamut. And with that, it's given me the opportunity to stretch into fractional CMO work where I'm able to leverage what I've learned over my career to help other businesses grow. Yeah. So you had you've worked with some really big names and in very unique environments. Mm -hmm. So why don't you detail for everybody, you know, like some of those big milestones sure. and employers that you've been and brands that you've supported. Sure, sure. So the one that I you, <laughs> the one you'll hear me repeat many times and you'll hear me quote her quite often is I did work for Mary Kay for a long long time. Amazing. I was the product marketing uh, manager for all of Mary Kay Europe, which gave me the opportunity to do quite a bit of travel and to get to know the European market quite, quite well. Uh, that is one of the experiences that I find I go back to so many times again and again, mainly because I so admire strong female leaders like Mary Kay, who took $5,000 back in the 50s and said, I'm going to build a business. And she built a $3 billion empire. It's amazing. And I just, I adore that about her and yeah. the company culture there and who they were serving. They knew, spot on, talking about our subject today, who their target audience was, who the buyer is, not just for the beauty consultant, but the end user as well. Yeah. Did a spectacular job of that. Well, and I mean, that's such a great example because that brand consistency and the heartbeat mm -hmm. of 
her mm-hmm. in what they stand for. It's not about makeup, mm-hmm. right? Like, right. yes, that was the product and that's the delivery mechanism, mm-hmm. you know, but the consistency at every level and yes. every touch point. Okay. So what was that like? How different was it, you know, adjusting to the European market versus, you know, what, it, what Mary Kay mm-hmm. in America is like? Uh, very interesting question. Uh, I've worked in international before. Yeah. So international is an area where I have a lot of expertise and a lot of experience. Going so deeply into Europe and really understanding the differences between, say, Western, Central, and Eastern Europe was something that I had never really delved into before. By this point, you guys have figured out that both Daisy and I are chief marketing officers, but what you might not realize is there's a whole team of us at the Marketing Blender, and we also have outsourced marketing teams. So if you're curious about how we break revenue plateaus, how we untangle sticky messaging, and how we make sure to drive exciting return on investment and profitable growth, Check us out at themarketingblender.com, but it's not just for mid-market companies. We've also figured out how to scale it down for small businesses too. The Marketing Blender Lab is our program just for small businesses looking to hit their first million in revenue. You still get to work with a real chief marketing officer, and we use the same structures and systems that work to grow big businesses to help you meet and exceed your goals. So again, if you're interested, check out themarketingblender.com. See you there. Yeah. So when you're looking at markets here in the U.S., let's just say anything having to do with personal care, home goods, anything of that nature, you're looking at larger homes, you know, consumers who have a little bit more disposable income. Whereas when you're looking at anywhere in Europe, you can't necessarily say we're going to sell them a large sofa or how about bath bubbles, you know, for them to use in their very large bathtub. They don't have it. Right. So you have to take a step back and say, where is it that they live? What does their daily life look like? They're not going to the grocery store or to Costco and buying three months of food. It's on a daily basis. So understanding who that buyer is, what their actual domain is, where they work, how they get to and from work, what their home is, all of those things are very crucial to understand as an American company selling into another country. Well, I love that. And there's so much application, I think, broadly, like even beyond consumer packaged goods, when you Mm -hmm. think about that, because it would be easy to say, oh, well, let's think about the makeup or, you know, those products as how they Mm -hmm. use them, you know, how they apply them or, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, bath products or perfumes or body Mm -hmm. lotions or whatever. But you're talking about where do they put, does this go in their purse? Does it go in their car? Where is the storage in their bathroom? Mm -hmm. What's the frequency? Like how big or large Mm -hmm. does the packaging need to be? What appeals to them? And that's, those details are massively important in regards to operationally what you deliver, but then how you go to market and how you talk to people about that. Absolutely. Um, I'll give one additional example. When you're looking at the fragrance market and you're comparing, let's say, Japan to Russia, okay, in Russia and Central European markets, perfume fragrance is a very big deal. And what they will do is they will set out tables right by their front door 
so that they can display all of their bottles of perfume. Really? And then when they go to leave the house, they spritz their arms, they spritz their body, so that as they're riding the metro or the, you know, the tube, whatever it is, and they're moving their arms, people are enveloped in the smell. That's interesting. In Japan and in other um, Eastern countries, having a smell is considered rude. It's not something that you want to uh, inflict on someone else. Okay. And yet gifting a very high, high-end bottle of perfume is something that is considered prestigious. Yeah. Where it sits is not out in the open. It sits in the bathroom. It sits in a cabinet. But where you will find, and this was through some of the research that we did, is women will spritz just a little bit on at night before they go to bed. Before bed. Because huh. it's just for them. Yeah. It's just for them. And so I have found that that's what I do quite a few times. I'm, I'm going to smell good. I put it on and I go to bed. And I'm like, got my use out of that. <laughs> well, you know, and I think I love that because it doesn't matter what product mm -hmm. you sell. Like thinking about the human being and the culture in which they function mm -hmm. in their daily lifestyle and every aspect of you know their finance and who they are relationally and socially mm -hmm. these people use these and obviously you know for perfume as an example there might mm -hmm. be more of a direct correlation but even when people are bringing their personalities and their experiences mm -hmm. to work that that point of view is still very informative about yes. decisions they'll make at work, how mm -hmm. they carry on with other people. And that's every single buying decision, whether yes. it's highly personal or mm -hmm. gift oriented, or if it's based on like, you know, to represent the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. I See, love it. Yes. Yes. So what kind of research did you guys do to uncover that? And then we'll transition to like, what can others do? So there was a lot of research that was done with the actual, you know, Mary Kay offices in each of the uh, countries. We did work, you know, very diligently to understand what these women were doing. We followed them extensively for quite a bit of time, brought them in for different, um, you know, research groups, went to their homes wow. to see how they were living and what it was that they were doing. So it was more than just a survey yeah it was truly digging deeper yeah into everything that from a cultural perspective they took into took into consideration as they were you know going about their purchases and how they wear yeah and it's all inherited as well so there is a lot of that inheritance that is passed down throughout the generations especially in cultures, you know, the, the Asian cultures, where you really do want to honor others that are around you. You don't want to be offensive in any way. And then you have other cultures, including Latin America, where you are just going to put it on because that's who you are. Yeah. You really want to display your personality. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you recommend when it's a company that doesn't have the kind of resources mm -hmm. or access or size of staff to mm -hmm. be able to do that type of super in-depth, high-touch type of research? Like, where do people mm -hmm. go? Well, I think the best thing for any company to do is to tap into what they already have. They have their customer base. Yeah. And asking your customers, you know, just 
walking them through a few questions in order to better understand what it is that they look for when they are purchasing a product, what barriers it is that they find themselves going up against, yeah. how they actually use the product, where are they going to find out the information, how they find it out. Some individuals, they're only going to do research online before they ever contact someone. Yeah, It may be someone who is, you know, every trade show I go to, every ad I see, every this or that, I'm, I'm just right out there and I'm ready to go. So I think one of the most important things is talk to your customers, talk to your salespeople, talk to your marketing staff. And if you're a small, you know, army of three people yeah. in your organization, you can still gather quite a bit of information about those folks. Absolutely. That tribal knowledge is huge. Mm -hmm. So buyer personas are absolutely foundational to building a high return on investment marketing strategy. So she's exactly right. Tapping into the people that know your market best inside of your organization, talking to sales folks, talking to your customer service representatives, talking to your operational people who really come in contact with your customers. You would be amazed that when you get your best client facing people in the same room, they know a lot about who these people are as human beings. But here's the key. You have to document those insights into a narrative about what that person believes about the world and what triggers their interest and attention and then write a value proposition specific to them because if it is not documented that is not decision making criteria and you cannot scale it across your organization so when you have a buyer persona whether mm -hmm. it's in mary Kay or whether it's your clients today mm -hmm. how frequently do you and your clients look at these like how important is it to have this documentation of these people uh, that's an excellent question and there are individuals who will take something of this nature and put it on a shelf and it starts to gather dust yeah. and quite frankly that's the worst thing that you can do you have spent your time effort and energy to get to know who your buyers are, yeah. where they shop, how they find information, what it is that they actually are looking to buy, you need to be looking at it on a daily basis. It needs to be integrated into everything that you're doing, from your marketing messaging to what is on your website, what goes into the emails that you're sending yes. as part of any of your lead generation campaigns. Anything where you have a touch point with your customer you need to know who you were talking to. Yep. Because as you know, our audience is not everyone. No. Our audience needs to be very honed down into here are the few and this is their personality and this is who we are going after. I agree. I mean, I think even for very sophisticated companies that we've worked for, it is very easy to start making assumptions and taking things for granted. And then also that blurriness when you start, mm -hmm. you know, talking about a market, right? Mm -hmm. Or a market segment, you know, we sell to OEMs or we sell to technology companies or we sell to small business. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. There's not a human being named small business or yes. OEM. Mm -hmm. There are very specific people and personalities that make those buying decisions, whether it's personal or organizational. And so I agree. I mean, it's interesting. We'd helped with a um, U.S. entry strategy for a manufacturer in Europe. So it's the mm -hmm. opposite of what you're talking okay. about. And so we helped build the American and then Latin American mm -hmm. personas. And the VP of marketing there, she said to this day, 
and this was a couple of years ago, she literally looks at them every week. And this is a mm-hmm. brilliant marketer. And I, I can relate to that. I mean, anytime I'm doing messaging, even for our own company, mm-hmm. but especially for a client, I literally go back to the playbook that has the personas documented. Mm-hmm. And I think, I go, okay, walk in their shoes, get yes. in their head, get in their heart. Would this resonate with this person? And mm-hmm. it is a game changer for making much better decisions yes. and making sure that if you're kicking off a project, everybody around that table is like, yep, we know exactly who we're serving through this marketing mm-hmm. and we know why. We have rationale on why our ideas are gonna resonate with this man or this woman. You know, you're really hit on something there and it is, basically the alignment within the organization. So if you do not know who it is that you are speaking to, yeah. your sales team doesn't know, operations, marketing, the owner of the company, if you all have this very diverse view of, well, here's who our customer is, yeah, you will have mixed messages going out in the organization. You will have this confusion that happens that actually will cost you money in the long run. Yes, It could dilute the quality of the leads coming in. It can, you know, extend and bloat the sales cycle. Yes. So by understanding and having this alignment on, here's who our target audience is, and here's who our target market is, Who here's the buyer within it, then you're able to truly home in on what that message needs to be so that you're speaking to that individual. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's fascinating how the consistency, right? Because, you know, what I think is funny and what my husband think is funny, different things, right? Um, You know, what people think is interesting, where they go Mm -hmm. for information. You know, some people are heavily reliant on referrals Mm -hmm. or reviews and testimonials. Others are much more confident in their ability to research and get into the details and Mm -hmm. figure it out for themselves. And that is a huge difference. And really what it boils down to is even the tactics that you choose for different personas Mm-hmm. are different, even if it's the same company. And, and I think people are surprised, you know, to hear that every single persona basically has their own marketing plan. Yes. So how many personas do you recommend that people or companies build? You know, and the, again, these are the people mm-hmm. that make or break the success of a company. So how many sure. do you typically focus on? I would say about three. Yeah. Now, it depends on what your organization offers. If you have a very diverse, you know, service or you know, type of offering for your business yeah. where there's very clear delineation between all of the lines of business, then you may have, say, four. But as you start to grow that number, it becomes unwieldy. And there, there does come a point of diminishing returns with it. So I typically will try to narrow it down to four. As you and I know, there was one time we were in a workshop with a client and we were like, okay, we now have seven and we're moving on to possibly having 11. Yes. Let's come in. Um, Because the point that you just made is it's the ones that make or break. Yep. So it truly is those individuals that are looking for what you have to offer or as I like to think of it, who may not even know that they need what you have to offer. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, that example that you brought up when we were in in person together Mm -hmm. with that client is such a great one because that client needed to document 
like yes. at least in person on the whiteboard, mm -hmm. all of the different people that influence their mm -hmm. buying decision. And so that, you know, like for the audience, this is a contracting company, you know, or construction company. And it, the thing about it is once they were on the board, mm -hmm. everybody in the room started being like, yeah, but really that person mm -hmm. only sometimes and they can't make the decision and they yes. can really only say no. They're actually an influencer. So what you realize is some of the people mm -hmm. just become part of the ecosystem of those three or four core people that make or so break true. your success. And so it was interesting. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to limit them. Mm -hmm. They started self-selecting and like clarifying, which then that becomes mm -hmm. very sticky for the team and yes. having aha moments like, why are we spending so much time over here on this person yes. when it's not really them mm -hmm. that is the one that controls how the revenue and how the decision mm -hmm. flows through to us? And I mean, just, just that exercise alone is such a game changer for yes. what are we going to spend time, attention, and mm -hmm. money on? And, I, and it, this is the one thing you can't ever, ever skip. You can't, you can't. And I was mentioning to you earlier today, there's some great statistics that back this up. Yeah. So companies that have buyer personas in place, they have a 210% increase in website traffic. I know, 210%. Yeah. They have a 10% increase in email traffic or email open rates. Amazing. So, and when you start looking at these things and boost, I believe it was 55% boost in organic traffic. These numbers speak, in my opinion, for themselves. By taking the time and putting your buyer personas in place, it helps you understand, truly understand, what it is that your business is offering. Yes. Do you need to change anything about your business? There might be, as you go through these, opportunities to find new services, new products, some adjustments to how you run your operations today. Yes. It can reveal so much. And by homing in on who that individual is, you now know, where do I spend my marketing dollars? Yes. What channels am I using? What language am I using in order to really appeal to them? It really takes that and helps you it simplifies the message to a certain extent because you're now not trying to appeal to everyone you're trying to appeal to this group of individuals yeah and you just get this natural alignment you know i mean mm -hmm. this sounds like a silly example but it's not there are some brands that use swear words in yes. their branding and their campaigns and you know why because their buyer personas are totally fine yes. with that yes and then there are others that if they even said geez it would be mm -hmm. like Yes, which has happened because it's such a mismatch mm -hmm. for who they are and what their specific human beings yes. that they serve, how they receive information and what they yes. believe about that company. So, I mean, it really matters. So one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years, but it's really ramping up, is that we started having clients ask us to document talent personas mm -hmm. because once your revenue grows... All of a sudden, you're not just attracting yes. customers. You have to attract the talent that's going to help you continue to deliver that brand promise. And so we started really kind of organically and behind the scenes yes. saying, okay, here's your buyer persona. And we've got at least one talent persona so we can mm -hmm. start applying healthy communication rules to your recruiting mm -hmm. practices. But fast forward a couple of years, we now have a number of engagements where 
we're only focusing on that internal customer. And so now we are intentionally being asked to build full-blown talent Mm -hmm. and internal communication systems. And you've really been at the heartbeat of like leading this initiative for us. And I am so excited. So talk to me about how that's going. Sure. So, I mean, it's very interesting, this shift that you've just spoken about. When you look at it, your brand in general, you have an external branding and you have your internal branding. Yes. And as companies are looking to retain and recruit, you know, talent uh, into the organization, whether they're growing, they're finding themselves at a point, this, this inflection point where uh, with the market the way it has been coming out of the pandemic, uh, with remote work, whatever it is, they're like, how do we retain our individuals without just giving in to every single whimsy and whim that they have? Great point. I'm not trying to be derogative uh, towards anyone in that way, but you have to really look at it from the perspective of what type of individuals are we looking for? How do they align with our culture? And what do we do to keep that talent that we have today? Yes. So through a talent persona, you're doing pretty much what you would with a buyer persona. Who are they? What are their demographics? Uh, what are the psychographics? Where do they go for information? What are they doing on the weekend? Um, to your point just a moment ago, what is the brand like? And do they are they a fit with that brand? If it's a if it's a company that you know, is very you know, out there and, and using swear words or whatever it is, that's probably who they have working for them too. <laughs> exactly. Because if you're not comfortable with it, you know, there might be a little friction. But when you're looking at a talent persona, there's so many bits and pieces of it that really do mirror what you say with the buyer persona. Yeah. The difference that comes into it is what are they looking for as far as their career goes? What type of benefits really are they looking to have? And that's not necessarily saying uh, PTO or, you know, healthcare or whatever it is. It could be, what is my career path? And so those types of things have to be taken into consideration. You're doing the same type of interviewing and research that you would with a buyer persona. You're talking to the employees. You're working with them to understand what is your life like? How, how are you, you know, looking at your job? What is it that you really enjoy? Where are you seeing some, you know, some friction for you within the organization? Yes. And how could this be made better? Yes. You're also looking, what are the competitors doing? Because there are some companies out there that are nailing it today yeah. that, you know, could be a direct competitor. How are they attracting talent? Are they attracting your talent? So how can you set yourself up to be an employer who has this employer brand value proposition where the employees are looking at it and they're saying, their values and my values, we are aligned. I am proud to be a part of this organization. And others are looking at it and saying, I want to be there too. Yeah. And you know, that extension of values is so important. You know, you were talking about benefits. It could be flexibility. I mean, it could be opportunity. It could Mm -hmm. be, you know, 
like resume building or experiences or mm -hmm. the relationships or the type of fun that the company has. Yes. But there's so many different reasons why your company already is what it is mm -hmm. and why certain people are going to really celebrate and be delighted to be a part of that. Whereas it might not be a fit for someone mm -hmm. else. And if you're talking to somebody amazing, they are definitely being interviewed yes. by other companies. And so I think that's so on mm -hmm. point to be thinking just like on your marketing, your mm -hmm. for customers, your you know, your customer facing communication, there is an equivalent ecosystem mm -hmm. on the talent side where they are making some of the biggest decisions in their life. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. Where you work, holy cow. Yes. And then we don't who owns that employer brand? Most companies don't even think about it. And HR is very structural mm -hmm. in general. And so they're focused on compliance and process and you mm -hmm. know that type of thing. And they have to be. And so then if you're thinking employer brand, that's marketing. Marketing's like what? No, we're being held accountable yes. for lead generation and supporting mm -hmm. the sales team. We don't own it. You ask leadership and they're like, what? We're managing people. We're getting product out the door. Right. <laughs> like, right. Why are you talking to us about employer brand? Mm -hmm. And so that, that area around culture and actually how do you scale culture? How do you document the communication mm -hmm. strategy? And off camera, you had said something so interesting to me that I think it's just right on point. It's that there's the talent, the prospective talent persona, mm -hmm. right? Like before you know them, like what is appealing about sure. your brand reputation that mm -hmm. why, and then there's who they are two years from now mm -hmm. or three years after that interview, now that they are a key employee mm -hmm. and their life has evolved because of their engagement and their decision to work for you. And same person, same, same psychographics, mm -hmm. just different point of view. And then having yes. that structure in place where there's a message for somebody that doesn't mm -hmm. know what the inside looks like, but that you intentionally have a message for the existing employees to want to stay and grow and develop and add their full potential yes. to your organization. I mean, I just thought that was like such a great point that it's again, not just about one message mm -hmm. blanketed over everybody, but a really intentional look at the human yes. beings that make or break your success from the inside. From the inside and it's consistency across that persona. So if you have your three, let's say talent personas, you need to have the consistency that runs from the perspective all the way through the individual who's been there two years to 10 years. It's what actually is going to be the reason for them to believe and to be a part of the organization. Them, it, theirs may be different than the other two talent personas that you have because they're all different individuals. Yeah. So an example that I saw recently is a company that's very involved in um, social responsibility, volunteering, and making sure that they are there for their community. Yeah. When you are looking for talent, you want individuals who have that core, you know, uh, tenant that's already within themselves. If you are looking for just anyone, let's say uh, it's an accountant, so you're just looking for anyone to fit into an accounting spot, and yet that is not part of who they are, then there's a disconnect with the organization as well. That's right. So it does help you from the perspective of, are they a cultural fit for us? And are we a cultural fit for them? Yeah. And, and you do life together. You do. Inside of the workplace. And even if you want to extend that on the customer side, I mean, 
especially if it's B2B, mm-hmm. right? I mean, most often these are long-term relationships. And so yes. if you allow that humanity into the communication structure, whether it's customer mm-hmm. or whether it's internal customer, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, like you can make better decisions. So again, back to decision-making mm-hmm. criteria because you're literally thinking about yes. other human beings. And those insights, I mean, it sounds so simple, mm-hmm. but it's a game changer because then you calm the noise down around yes. how much do we pay them or what, you know, what can yes. we do? Because then all of a sudden you open up a whole realm of possibility in mm-hmm. regards to what do they actually value? Mm-hmm. And so values are not just the words that you have on your wall and what you believe, but it's why yes. do those values align for people? And like, mm-hmm. what, what was that connective tissue? And then mm-hmm. how do you, how do you make them real? How do you make it real? It, one of the things that you said just a moment ago about um, you know, the brand and who actually is working on that internal branding and where is marketing spending their time and where is sales spending their time in smaller organizations, you do not have an, an, eternal, an internal communications team. Yeah. And in larger companies, you do. There are individuals, entire groups of individuals within larger organizations whose sole purpose is to work on communications for their existing employees and to work to find ways to communicate that out into the you know larger community at large yep so there's that one aspect that if you've got a very small team finding an individual on your team who can spend just a little bit of time focusing on how are we going to communicate this with our employees would be well worth your time. Yeah, I love it. So you guys, to put a wrapper around this, again, buyer personas or talent personas are documented decision-making criteria. You'll see a narrative about who this person is and what they believe. You'll have some basic demographics about consistencies, you know, inside of that somewhat fictional person who makes or breaks your success. And then you'll have some bullet points around what do they value when it comes to your organization. They're pretty short because if they're really long, to Melora's point earlier, they will just collect dust on the shelf. So these are documented, tight, documented personas where very quickly you could scan over them and go, got it, I'm inside the mind of my buyer or of my prospective talent, and now I can really make decisions that will work for them and for us. So that's what the documentation looks like. You can harvest this through formal market research. You can harvest it through your best customer or or talent-facing people. And you can also harvest it through simple interviews, whether it's voice of the customer or voice of the employee. But there are loads of places, cost-effective and healthy investment why so wide range no matter what size of a company you are where you can go to get these insights of course surveys and all sorts of things but the effort is definitely worth the reward so as we wrap up any final tips that you would give people you know any you know just kind of reminders or advice in regards to buyer personas and talent personas don't look at them as you know, something that is going to sit on the shelf. Okay, we, we've spoken about that. Yeah. Definitely use them, revisit them on an annual basis. Truly, you need to do that. As the world changes, as technology changes, everyone does evolve. 
and you may find that through the information you've learned um, about your customers over the past 12 months, maybe you have decided that you want to move in a slightly different direction. That direction does mean you need to update your buyer personas. And when you're looking at your talent personas, I truly encourage people to, to use them. And that way, when they're actually looking for new employees, they're going after the ones that you know truly are a fit. And you're no longer in that pray and spray. I'm putting <laughs> a ton of job ads out there and I just hope someone sticks. So it takes that off the table and creates just a little bit more of a system for you to find the right people. Well said, absolutely. Well, you guys, thank you so much. In the description below, we are gonna have a number of resources, including an example of what buyer persona questions you can ask yourself, your team, or in your research. And so take a look at that. I think you'll find it really helpful. And if you haven't done so, hit that subscribe button. And to all of you that have been watching week after week, thank you so much. We'll see you next time on Word and Upward.